Hey there, folks. This is Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly for the Investment News Podcast. Got a couple of great segments for you this week. We have, we're starting off with Erica Karp, the Chief Impact Officer at Pathstone. And then we're going to get into talking about SPACs with our very own Nicole Casperson. But uh, first of all, I want to start it off with Erica. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you uh, That's a really new position for you there at Pathstone because I think you merged your company, Cornerstone, where you were CEO with Pathstone earlier this month. I want to hear about that first, if you don't mind. That you had a $1.1 billion firm at Cornerstone, and now you're, what, $15, 17000000000 billion or something like that at Pathstone? Actually, closer to $25. So okay. It's, uh, it's exciting. Yeah. And thank you for having me, and thank you for asking. So, yeah. So, we are now merged with Pathstone, and, you know, it's been really fascinating to find, you know, such extraordinary synergies, really. Cornerstone... We are. We were a purpose-built, research-driven impact investment advisor, and Pathstone has, a, you know, a powerful heritage of advising families and foundations and endowments. And the size and entrepreneurship and innovation and technology and familiarity with impact investing and sustainability—all those were already in place. So it's it's as if we were meant to be together. Mm-hmm. Great. You you did a uh, a webcast recently, which I which was hosted by Investment News, and I I reported it, covered it, and a lot of things came out of there that we wanted to kind of dig into a little bit more. One thing that was interesting to me, and I, I actually made it the headline of the story, is ESG investing is just investing. I love that, and I love the I love your straight talk on all of this stuff, also because I've been covering this space for a long time. I know you've been involved for a long time. And it is getting to the point now where ESG investing is just investing. But I think you would acknowledge that it's not that way for everyone, right? Well, yeah, very much not. I mean, there's still a huge amount of skepticism that ESG investing uh, is just investing. And, And the reality is there's no such thing as ESG investing per se. ESG analysis is a discipline. It's a tool. And it should be used for all investing if you're going to do good research, if you're going to you know, have thoughtful insight, predictive insight, and risk-adjusted returns. It's a discipline that is necessary. And, um, and what was, I mean, it seemed impossible, but now it's inevitable. What's the pushback, Erica, from people? There's a few. The first pushback is that there's not clarity on language, right? So people talk about ESG right. or SRI and you know double bottom line, triple bottom line, whatever. But again, it's all investing, but the language is not consistent. That's a problem. Another big problem is there still is a perception that you may have to give up uh, competitive market returns. That is just wrong. It's a myth, and it's been debunked with all the empirical research. And then the third is, um, oh, I'm sorry. The third is just that there's um, there's not a fiduciary alignment. And again, that is just false. In fact, it's the opposite of the reality. How much time have you spent in your career, kind of, kind of arguing with these people and 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 the like? Well, you know, my entire career, so like 30 years on Wall Street. You know, my whole job is to ask questions and to do it in a pragmatic way, um, looking for an enhanced analytical approach. 
And that's what I found, you know, 15 years ago in ESG analysis. It's that's your advantage, research. in other words. Yeah, it's better research. What is the, the Biden administration likely to do to help promote ESG investing or, or kind of help the, the space in general? Yeah. I mean, this is about an understanding of the principle that it's good to know more rather than less when you're making an investment. The other principle they understand is there is actually enormous systemic financial risk from things like climate change. There is also enormous systemic financial risk from income inequality and wealth inequality or, or, or um, you know, gender bias. So there's an understanding of these principles that hasn't been the case. And so we're seeing that in terms of recent actions by the SEC and the leadership of the SEC. In terms of, of actions by the SEC, this has been a, a kind of a pet project of mine for a long time. What will it take to get ESG funds on retirement plans? That's where most regular people have <laughs> all of their money. Jeff right. talks about this all the time, Eric. It, it here, drives man. me nuts. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't penetrate the retail masses until you get to those plans. I think it's a great question. You You're know? right. You're, it absolutely is. And we have to get to, you know, through those two big barriers. So the myth of underperformance and the worry of fiduciary. Now, what you so have to do- what's got to happen though, Erica, to well, sate what Jeff Benjamin's- to Desire to invest in his, his retirement plan yeah. and, and ESG funds for crying out loud. So What's- there's a couple things. The first is we have to look at the composition of these boards of trustees that are making these decisions for the plans. There's a composition that lends itself to kind of old thinking, and that's a problem. And then we're just going to have to see huge grassroots demand for getting the products on there. I'll tell you, the best day of my career was when I founded Cornerstone. We got our SEC approval. I brought my 401k rollover over to my own firm to manage my own money in my own way. <laughs> and, and, and so, so this is a matter to some degree of, of the grassroots demand. It's, it's happening. Again, it's like I talked about the uh, becoming inevitable. Are any of the big plan providers, though? I mean, is it, is it something that the government has to do or is it something that the plan provider has to do? I mean, who's... Whose discretion is it exactly to include these types of funds? Well, it's, it's ultimately, it's the plan providers. I mean, the government can provide the kind of infrastructure and guidance and right. oversight that has to be done. But as with any issues around sustainability, it's got to be both, you know, the government and the private sector. We need are, both. Are there any plan providers or fund companies, you know, who are making this an issue or is like Vanguard, to your knowledge, is a Vanguard going to the plan provider and saying, hey, we want to have our ESG index fund in here too. This is why. Or is Fidelity as a plan provider, are they in talks with with the big fund companies about this? Do you know? Well, you know do you, yeah. Is your knowledge, is that the right question to ask you or is, or is your that not your area of expertise? Well, I, one of my colleagues would have a more detailed answer, but what I can tell you is there are going to be some complexes that are much more kind of proactive than others, just like with when it comes to you know corporate engagement. Sometimes it's not the giant ones that are most uh, thoughtful and, right. and proactive. This is what it feels like to me, Erica. It feels like 
companies like Vanguard, I don't, I'm not only using Vanguard as an example because Bruce mentioned it, but it, it is a good example. They have some funds labeled ESG. They have a lot of funds that might not be labeled ESG, but probably follow a lot of the analysis that would go along the lines of ESG. But, That's part but, of their confusion, Jeff, right? That's part of the... Right. But but what what they're doing is they're kind of they're kind of stacking things up at the fences, you know, at the borders, you know, just in case, like when it happens. But the firms that really need this to happen are firms like Calvert, which is now part of, I think, Morgan Stanley. Right. But, right. you know, the 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 ones that, that are specifically concentrated in this area. But to, to Bruce's point about the fund companies, the push isn't the fund companies. They're going to want to have ESG strategies. They want to sell these products, room. man, to people we're, like we're, you they're and me and Erica. They're going to have these products at the ready when the flood, when the doors open. But the doors are being held shut at the plan level, and I think that's a lot of concerns about liability. Because you know, Erica, they, these plans they they manage to the lowest common denominator. They have to make things generic and safe and low cost. You, you know, I mean. You are so saying stuff that I'm not allowed to say. Oh, well, come on, Erica. That's what the podcast is for, you know? I know, I know. Look, there, there, there is not a small amount of positioning, marketing, greenwashing, you know, and it, it passed on. This is what we're doing all day long. We're evaluating which managers really deeply integrate the right ESG factors, right? So yes, what's worrisome and ultimately- You scrub them that closely, huh? You analyze them that closely. That's exactly what we do. So you have like a preferred, you have a preferred list of money managers? Yep. We have a platform of managers across asset classes and we align the investment objectives and the social objectives with those of our clients, right? So this is what we do all day long as we analyze these funds. Yeah. And I will tell you, it's kind of a dangerous point where we have plenty of product. There's loads of product coming, but to create a product that is simply kind of relabeled as, you know, ESG or sustainable or impact is a dangerous time. It takes a skilled manager to, to really get the kind of performance we can have. And could you explain just for people listening, like Jeff's golf buddies and every and and my dad and everything, you know what greenwashing is. I think it's a term that people get yeah. tossed around, and people might not be familiar with. What does that right. mean with ESG? Um, so, to me, greenwashing to some degree means obfuscating what is genuinely important. Right. So, I'll give you a very specific example, and let's use gender lens investing. So if a manager, an asset manager tells us that, oh yeah, this fund is a gender lens fund and they're integrating ESG. And then we say, what do you do? They say, well, we count the number of women on boards and then the executive seat. And then I'm okay, what else do you do? And they say, well, that's what we do. That is greenwashing. That is not a gender lens fund. You know, a fund that a manager that goes much deeper and looks into practices and policies and supply chains and everything that you have to think about when it comes to true gender lens investing. And also understanding that it's not just about gender, it's about access to education and capital and healthcare and water and broadband. So it's kind of like window dressing, huh? I mean, that's an old fashioned expression. It's exactly what it is. And my mom would use that phrase, window dressing. That's what it is. And it would give you the, the, the opposite of the results you really want, both financially and socially. 
Well, you mentioned something earlier this week, uh, Erica, about, I think you, you said it was somebody else's research, but that 91% of new funds are just old funds with new ESG labels <laughs> on them. Mm-hmm. That, I said that, and I, I am not certain where I got it from, but I could probably track it down and source it. But yes, that's a data point that I heard. So you screen out tobacco and all of a sudden you're an ESG right. fund. Right. It's like not okay. So that's an example of greenwashing, in other words. Yep. Okay. But the the other end of that, and I found this by looking through some, looking kind of behind the curtains of some of the uh, Morningstar Globe ratings on their funds, is you'll have funds that have really high Globe ratings, meaning they they meet all the, or many of their criteria for ESG strategies, but they don't label themselves ESG at all. And that just kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about it's just investing. These fund managers are just investing. They're investing on the the best of information available, and they happen to qualify highly as ESG funds, whether they're rating themselves that way or not, which I think is is a is a pretty interesting sign. That's dead on, and that's because these ESG factors that are material that matter to the economic and financial outcomes, they're being looked at by serious asset managers. And by the way. Some of these hedge funds, they're doing it too, but they don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. But they really yeah. understand how to find predictive insight from information that might not be as obvious. You well, know? hedge funds aren't going to give away anything, right? I mean, not they have they claim to have the secret sauce, mm-hmm. you know. So right. you know, their their analysis is their secret, you know, they're not going to give away an inch on, That's right. on that. I want to go back to something, go back a little bit, and that's kind of our style here. We go all over the place. We like to leave our audience a little tipsy, right? They, they, they leave and they have a little buzz and they don't know why. Well, we did that by design. So anyway, Erica. The, I thought that was only when we were talking about cannabis investing. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's a secondary is what they call it, a secondary uh, okay. buzz. But anyway, uh, a second hand, I'm sorry. The explosive popularity of ESG investing, its it, we know the numbers. Money has been pouring in over the past year. I think Bruce would probably attribute that to COVID because he thinks everything is, is attributable <laughs> to COVID. <laughs> but um, the, uh, it, it, I mean, this has to create some challenges for people like yourself that are, that are kind of dyed in the wool in this space. I mean, you've got it's more confusing to people. There's more funds out there. There's so much data. Well, Erica was doing this before people knew it was even around, it sounds like. so. Right. So what are the challenges there? For, and, what, and what's the good part of it, too, of all this popularity? Yeah. I mean, it, again, the challenge goes to picking the right funds that are doing it properly, deep integration. The challenge is understanding the complexity, right? So we've been in the midst of you know, a health crisis, a financial crisis, economic crisis, climate crisis, racial crisis. Like we've been, so understanding the nexus of all these crises is complex. And then knowing the acceleration of the trends that we've already been seeing, a massive acceleration in work from home and telemedicine and um, the use of AI. I mean, all the trends that we're seeing accelerating, right? And so it's, it's, a fascinating time. And most importantly, and here's if you could say something good is coming out of this, we are seeing this stark light, you know, shined on issues of injustice and inequality and gaps in our supply chains and our ability to, you know, move forward rapidly. I mean, this 
this period. It's it's unprecedented. And so again, you know, the big the big important thing in the investment world is to make sure we do stick with those skilled managers that know what they're doing in a time of this much change and complexity. And if they know what they're doing, they use ESG analysis as a proxy for quality and a proxy for innovation and resilience. Um, so that's what ESG analysis could be you know, perceived as. Mm-hmm. Can you give us, Erica, an idea of who's on your short list or is that part of your secret method that you <laughs> don't want to give away? That actually is part of our secret sauce. But I got to tell you, like, I can't resist, you know, thinking about managers like Green Alpha and like ARC and like KBI and managers that, that really understand kind of historically, you know, what ESG integration is, like Trillium, like Boston Commons. So those okay. are a few that I'll throw out there for you. Okay, mm-hmm. thanks. Also, Erica, can you define for our audience the distinction between impact investing and what other types of ESG sustainable? I mean, I think that's an important distinction to make. It is. You're right. So first of all, impact, you know, I think all investments have impact. But when we talk about this umbrella term, let's say sustainable investing, here's what we're talking about, the systematic analysis of the material environmental, social, and governance factors that affect economic outcomes. So that's the broad umbrella of sustainable investing. With impact investing, it goes further in that we start with an intentionality, right? With this is what we want to address, climate change, gender inequities, clean water, right? So you start with intentionality, then you hope you're going for additionality, meaning, but for your investment, some social outcome would not have happened. So that's the additionality piece. It's an aspiration. And then we go for measurability, right? So you want to be able to say, okay, what did, what did my investment do? So when it comes to intentional, additional, and measurable, that's kind of how we talk about impact investing. And again, there's, there's no perfect here. So we just want progress. Right. I just have one more question for you, and I'm not sure if Bruce has anything else for no, you. But I'm, I think I'm good. I'm think I'm good. This is fat. This is all fascinating to me, though. It really is it's a great conversation. My my last question. I feel like we're we're getting there. And with my example of the the globe ratings at Morningstar, was how, when do we get to the point where we're not using ESG labels anymore, and we're just accepting the fact that the industry is looking at the value of the data, and they don't feel like they need to put that label on there anymore to distinguish it because as you said in the in the webinar recently, seventy five years ago, companies didn't even report their revenues. Public companies didn't. I mean, you know, at seventy five is a long time ago, but we've come a long ways, right? Well, we've sort of come a long way. The truth is, it's going to still be a while, and because you know, the, the we don't yet have firm standards for corporate disclosure of ESG factors, right? So different firms report in different ways, and it's like all over the place. We're getting closer. Okay, there's an organization called the SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. But until we have reliable corporate disclosure, we don't have good data, and then data is built into not so good ratings, and then the ratings are built into not so great indices, and then they're put into ETFs. So all of that chain of kind of, let's call it false precision, is a place for for error. 
And until we understand that we have something really valuable here for predictive insight, it's going to take a while. So I'll say a decade plus. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll still be here and uh, we'll bring you back. Okay. Cool. <laughs> All right, guys. Stay safe. Yes. Thank you, you very too, much. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Nicole Casperson, and this isn't my cameo on the podcast, but I am coming at you to remind you that the new investment news podcast called Tech Stacks will be dropping Monday, March 22. Be sure to check it out as we are covering all things social media. You can find us on investmentnews.com, fintechforadvisors.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere you can find podcasts. Now back to Jeff and Bruce and me, of course. All right, that was uh, good stuff from Erica Karp of Pathstone. Now we're uh, transitioning over to our colleague, Nikki Kasperson, the uh, technology reporter here at investmentnews.com. She's got uh, kind of the inside track on uh, SPACs. Apparently, these are spectacular, according to her. Let, yeah, uh, they're, they're called Shack SPACs. Uh, yeah, SPACarama, <laughs> whatever. So, anyway, Nikki, welcome aboard. Can you uh, can you give us a give us a rundown? I mean, these things seem to be everywhere. What's the big deal, and why are they suddenly popular? This seems like something that's been around for a while, right? Yeah. So obviously, SPACs are really popular when celebrities like A Rod or obviously Shaquille O'Neal start uh, lending their star power to these uh, reverse merger companies. It's always interesting to see and obviously makes headlines. So the simple answer to you for why SPAC deals are dominating the market is really that they're just a convenient shortcut for these fintechs to go public without the hassles of pursuing an IPO. So with a SPAC, they get immediate predictable funding. They get a favorable valuation, you know, in these like tens to ten billion dollar realms, which is great for these, you know, late stage fintech companies. They get a speedier market entry by about two to four months compared with an IPO. And there's just typically less to deal with with the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission and that sort of thing, and kind of just a shortened audit process. So in the words of uh, Joanna Coles, who uh, led, who helped lead a uh, SPAC for Apex Clearing, the uh, digital custodian, it is just uh, cheaper and more efficient. Yeah. So what was the deal you were writing about this week? Nicole, that involved a, a SPAC. Yes. Yeah, so basically, um, online brokerage eToro announced that they're going public via a SPAC, which was interesting because their uh, special purpose acquisition company is FinTech Acquisition Corp, which is led by Betsy Cohen. And so she's right. obviously, you know, well known, a big deal. eToro at, with a SPAC, the combined company is valued at $10.4 billion. And that's just crazy to me. It's crazy. And the reason it's a big deal is because eToro kind of has this leverage to possibly take on Robinhood, right? So obviously the timing is great. Robinhood is not having a great year. It's only March. I mean, but and- so, just forgive me, but like LPL went public, a brokerage firm, right? And custodian, RIA custodian. They went public in 2010. They're, they have a market cap of, 30, uh, of $11 billion right now after like 11 years in the marketplace. And they make, you know, they have real income of like a billion dollars a year or something, mm-hmm. you know? So how can one of these brokerages, online brokerages that who who knows how much net income they have can, can you know, rack up that kind of valuation? I just, Jeff, I don't buy it. <laughs> I I'm think not it's a SPAC buyer. Right? I, yeah, well, I, I'm, I, I'm with you, man. 
I mean, you do gotta you think produce it, income for crying out loud. You know, I, I do don't you, get it. Do you think it's just, I mean, uh, there seems to be a trend, right? With these like massive celebrities or even like media moguls like Joanna Coles who are putting, lending their star power to this. I mean, the. I don't like that either. The, uh, the uh, National Hockey League's New York, the, the John Ledecky, he, he is the uh, owner or majority owner or part owner, something like that. Of, of the, the uh, Of the Islanders. Exactly. Right. Thank you. Sorry. My, my sports uh, references. The New York Islanders, great. they're based in Long Island, though. Yeah. Ah, so. okay. That's a well, hockey they, team, Nicole. <laughs> yeah. They play hockey on the ice. I wasn't sure. I thought maybe football, something like whatever. So they're a sports team. They do sports. Yes. And He's got a spec. Yeah, no, he partnered with Joanna Coles, who oh. was the former. So she's the former chief content officer of Hearst Magazine's former editor in right. chief of Cosmo, Marie Claire. You know, big deal. She's got like her own, you know, reality shows. She was on Project Runway, all this big stuff. But they partnered together for to help Apex Clearing, the digital custodian, go public. So Apex is the digital custodian for right. you know, like Weeble and and those kind of online brokerages, but. I think that the reason why the valuation is so high to go back to your question is because these people already have this like mass amount of wealth and investment to put into these companies, right? So if they're putting this down and via their blank check merger, via via their SPAC company that they created to help this company go public, then I would have, I would think that that has something to do with like this massive valuation because they're already they're pre-throwing down these like investments into the company yeah, already. As Why opposed to raising it through an IPO. strikes me Why as being naive. Guys? It's naive to believe that oh. these people have some kind of magic wand that they can wave. Yeah, I, I don't understand why the, now, what, why the celebrities are getting involved in this. Are they just putting their brand on it or are they putting their big <laughs> money paid. on it? Come on. Right, right. Well, it's to, it's to, it is. It's to put their, it's to use their network, use their branding, use their celebrity to make these company is a big deal. I, I, per, my personal belief does think that this is kind of like a pandemic trend a bit, right? Like, yeah. Oh, you know, oh, look at Shaq. He did it. Like A-Rod did it. Why Sierra, the pop star did it. Like, why can't I jump in and like, give it a go? <laughs> well, the, the people who, who run the SPAC get something called a promote, right? They get like 10 or 20% of the equity in the company or, or the pro or the product, right? The company that the, that the SPAC buys. The SPAC doesn't have anything at first. It's just a blank check company, right? Mm -hmm. It raises a 200 million or a billion or $10 billion, whatever, whatever it does. And then once they buy, so they have two years to buy whatever they're going to buy, or they have to give back the money to their investors. Right. So, and, and then they get paid a promote, right? And I think the promote is 10 or 20% of the equity in the company that they buy. So, you're handing them your money for the pleasure of them to do an acquisition, right? And how do you, you have to perform like hell to overcome that 10 to 20% bite that's taken out of your capital right from the start. To me, it sounds right. like a, like a non-traded read or something there, Professor. Right. But if you think about it, if these like mass celebrities and media moguls are already sitting on top of so much cash and wealth just from their life and being famous and all that good stuff, then it isn't such a taxing thing, right? For them to hope to oh. maybe no Not a taxing no, I thing. <laughs> Look, Sorry, I God, God bless this woman. She was the editor of Hearst, right? That's a really that's a high as high power a job you're gonna get. Right. Exactly. But what on earth does she or A Rod know about running a public company? You know? I mean, they have the I think that the point is that that's kind of why you 
are the more so the networking, almost like a marketing right side of the of the biz where the the company that you're taking public, right, is the one that is going to kind of have their foothold in the ground, right? It's more of the partnership. So like for Joanna, you don't it's pay about dividends from marketing. It's about like partnering with like Trisha Rothschild, who's the president of Apex Clearing and has all of this tenure in the industry. She was like with Morningstar forever and all that stuff. I mean, that's kind of the idea, right? Like, hi, I'm here. I can use my wealth, yeah. my celebrity to network, but you're going to do kind of the groundwork and the field work to like make sure that this works. And is did, did the SEC yeah. just put out some kind of investor warning or FINRA put out some investor warning about, you know, celebrities? Yeah, the SEC, they were they were telling people they were doing what the SEC does, telling people to read the fine print and try and understand what they're investing in. But Nicole, my question for you is, first, you mentioned fintechs is the opportunity for fintechs. I mean, this isn't just fintechs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, SPACs are they're far and wide. And the other question is, did you talk to any financial advisors? Are they are they seeing this as an opportunity? Do you know? That I do not know, unfortunately. I haven't I've only been focusing on the fintech wealth tech side of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been covering these just so we keep having the record, but I do think that it's worth uncovering this bigger trend as of the why outside of just, right. you know, it's cheaper and more efficient. But how it will impact advisors, I'm not sure. I mean, the the thing that would maybe impact them the most is that fintechs like eToro, like SoFi. SoFi is also going public via SPAC. And how that might, their growth, right? Like having this extra capital, having these like massive valuations, how is that going to maybe trickle down into impacting the advisor realm? I mean, it's well, probably just in a similar way that they already are disrupting, right? These online brokerages. I'm not talking about the impacting the advisors. I'm talking about that, whether or not their clients see this as an opportunity or they see this as an opportunity oh. for their clients. Because to me, this sounds like a more streamlined way to do private equity investing. Basically, you do the same thing. You give private equity funds money and they invest it for you. They don't automatically make these companies public, but this seems kind of like a, you know, a private equity for dummies, <laughs> real dummies. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, to me, it's interesting the whole, the way that they're riding this whole thing on the backs of celebrities. I mean, is, is this the same as William And the back Shatner? of COVID too. I mean, I've yeah, done some reporting uh, yes. about this, and I gotta agree with. What's COVID got with, to do with it? With well, What's COVID got to do with it? <laughs> Sing it, Nikki. What's, Sing it. Come on, it. I agree with. I agree with BK. I think it. I think the pandemic has stuff to do with it. it People, it's it, it's yeah. something that's kind of flashy. It's kind of different. People, investors are bored. Mm-hmm. They're sitting around. They're, it's like GameStop <laughs> or something. You know, they get on a message board. They hear about a SPAC. A couple of these have been very successful, though, right? So we shouldn't denigrate all of them. And so, you know, it's different. People have refinanced their mortgages. They got extra money sitting around. And, you know, they hear about a Shaquille O'Neal running something. And they say, yeah, yeah, you know, five grand, ten grand. I just don't get all that stuff when I hear about people are bored. So they're doing these. I mean, is life that bad? Some people aren't playing golf. How do you think? I mean, how do you think? Find a hobby, man. Read a book. Talk to your spouse. I mean, there's got to be other stuff you can do besides pouring your money down a hole. All right. To play devil's advocate to you, Jeff, at least that at least what has happened is that people are so bored that they're finally interested in finance. Yeah, but Isn't they're doing all the wrong thing? stuff. I mean, for That's human nature. Mm, I got to mention, mean, ha- just as in terms of advisors, we've written about two. We wrote about two SPACs last year at the end of the year. 
One, uh, Lefteris, is run by Mark Cassidy, who was the former CEO of LPL Financial. I think they're a fintech SPAC, right, Nicole? And then another is run by Larry Roth, who's a former CEO of Advisor Group and Satara, and that's Kingswood Acquisition Corp. And they're actually hunting RIAs, Jeff. So they're yeah, trying see, to use that, that's the SPAC we- to do Larry wants Larry Roth wants to do a, a, a big uh, RA roll up acquisition machine, and the, the other kicker to that is that he's their guy in the United States, but they're based out of Italy, I believe, or England. Kingswood Acquisition, or yeah, they're, that- they're European, so it's an easy way for a European company to come into this space, raise two hundred million real quickly, and then go participate in the RIA uh, M and A boom. See, to me, that makes some kind of sense, though. If you're going to look at specs. Look at who is running this thing, who's actually doing it, as opposed to, you know, Shaquille O'Neal. God well, Larry's love him, background but, is in know, M&A. He's been doing M&A for yeah, right. you know, That's what I just 30, said. 40 years or whatever. Shaquille O'Neal, yeah. he's, you know, he's known for those things you stick on your back so you don't have pain anymore. I mean, come on. I love that stuff. Icy hot. Yeah, well, there yeah. you go. Then you should invest in this back. <laughs> Bruce just wants to say Shaq's back Shaq's all back. the time. Shaq's back. <laughs> Well, I think it's fascinating, and I do have to agree with Nicole. I think it's part of this pandemic. There's, there's all you know, interest rates hit rock bottom again, right during the pandemic. Everybody refinanced. There's, there's all this money sloshing around. People are afraid of inflation. They're chasing assets. This thing is kind of nifty sounding. It has some celebrities involved. It's going to get attention. It's going to, I mean, think of the 24 hour news cycle. You know, who, who, they're going to talk about this on. On yeah, CNBC, you, right. you know, though on Fox Business, I guess right. it doesn't. It doesn't hurt that the federal government keeps sending out those checks. Man, you got to do something <laughs> with that money, right? <laughs> oh and no! Okay, what, what, that? What is it? The the fourteen hundred dollars? How much of that is going to go to the SPAC attack? Oh boy! <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> I look at it. It's similar to GameStop for me. Like, who who yeah. would imagine? You know, GameStop shooting up to four hundred bucks a share. You know, but it did. So. Agreed. Thank you. Yeah. What? <laughs> Sorry, I'm like laughing at the just spacks are crazy. It, it's crazy. It's crazy the way something spirals like this in any capacity, right? And I think all of the things uh, coming together have what things to do with it, right? There's the fintechs gaining steam in uh, in like the online trading, online brokerage right. world. Celebrities going about it and you know making headlines and in every you know realm of the world and. Then to top it off, you know, there's social media and Twitter and all of the things there that when someone tweets that they're doing something, someone's looking at it and wants to mimic. And it's like a whole, there's so many like influences that make something like SPACs or Bitcoin or whatever it is, you know, become popular. And uh, the, the silver lining to me is that at least people are paying attention, right? At least there's that, even if they're doing it out of boredom. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this. Well, thank you, Nicole. Thanks, guys. Okay, thanks. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. And as everybody knows, our listeners know, we launch every Monday. Um, uh, Again, that was a great episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank Eric Park of Pathstone and our very own Nicole Casperson from Investment News, our technology reporter. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. Of course, if you're listening, you can find us at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple, please, and follow us on Spotify. 
our Twitter handles are at Benji Ryder and me, I'm at BD News Guy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be talking to you next week.